Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And this evening we have one more perspective to look at tonight before we look at those who are under authority. It's our children and it's our the others that the scripture mentions, but mostly the children as they mention the fifth commandment. Tonight, therefore, let's look once more at the fifth commandment and our first thought. God says, honor my authority. And our first thought was that you are to honor that as you exercise it. And now tonight as parents, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 again. And I will read the first four verses, actually, so we see them together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And along with that, I want to read also Colossians 3.21 once more, where it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, all of us who work with children, not only parents here, teachers, youth leaders, Staff members, really anyone who ever works with children, babysitters, even those. If you get that task once in a while and you are delegated the authority of the parent over the child or children, you then are on the other side of the fifth commandment when you are a babysitter. As then you are the ambassador of the parent doing what they are to do, and now you do it. Now, see, children, even those of you who once in a while babysit others, you are then to honor also God in his authority. Now, we all know as we work with children the disappointment and how children respond to the well-meaning, loving actions to make them behave right. I think every parent wants their children to behave right. And we spend a lot of energy on that. Prayer and teaching. And yet before we tonight ask the question or pin the blame on children for their misbehavior, we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first is, Are my expectations of my children biblically realistic? What do I mean with this question? Do I expect my children to be an exception to the rule our Savior laid down when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? I 
have my impression that sometimes as parents, we think that only refers to spiritual things. In the spiritual life of a child of God. Sorry, John 15.4 refers to my and your children. They can do nothing pleasing to God apart from being united to Jesus Christ. They are a dead branch in Adam. And that's what I asked. Do I have unrealistic expectations of my child or children? So those of you who are in the journey to be parent, think about that. Does that thinking of John 15 for function in my thinking? Or do I expect that if I at least make the best environment possible, my kids will be angels? And they'll behave well. Huh? That can be a sore disappointment then. Do I expect or think that my rules and my approach and my management will change their heart? Now, this is a really important thing for us as parents or even grandparents, as we still have the opportunity to parent our grandkids. That brings me to the second question. Am I using God's only instrument to change the heart of a child. Now, what I mean with that, the only instrument to change the heart of a child is not the law of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is perfect. The law is loving. And it is so necessary at any age that we uphold and teach and explain what the law of God is. Absolutely. We're weak on that, I think. So that's something we don't want to weaken. I want to water down now. The law tells us the right from wrong, not our ideas. God's, God, God dictates what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, we do, we do teach the law. The law provides us with the boundaries to protect us. We've studied that over and over. The law is not out there to punish uh, us. Uh, now, of course, the, 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 because we are sinners and we have sinned, yes, the law will be condemning. But the law was given to protect us. As God's loving boundaries. And the law is used, as Paul writes, by the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law is used to bring conviction. To make us see that we fail in the presence of God and man to be the creatures God wants us to be. Yet, the law of God is powerless to change the heart. Romans 8 verse 3 comes to my mind here, 
For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, I know Paul is talking about justification there in some way. But really what Paul is saying there, what the law could no more do, because our flesh is fallen and sinful. We can't respond, we can't do what God calls us to do because of our sinfulness. So no matter how good the law is, how no matter how good the rules are, heavenly, divine, they cannot ever change the heart of the children. Here's one author. He says, if we reduce Christian parenting to being the faithful lawgiver, to be the arresting officer, to be the prosecutor, the judge and the jailer, thinking that that will change their heart, then we forget no amount of law will deliver, change or even humble our hearts or bring a new heart. Why not? Parents, we know this, don't we? We believe in this doctrine of total depravity, don't we? And as we look at these tiny little creatures that are coming into our lives, laid in our hands, they are so cute. And yet Thomas Manton is correct. They are like a snake in an egg. Now, that's not a negative. That is a reality that I have experienced and you have experienced. As a child, you experience that, kids, don't you? Don't you see yourself? Selfish, sometimes so disrespectful to mom and dad or to the teachers or to the pastor or elder. You see that, don't you? Sometimes you have to eat your own words because what you said and you don't necessarily want to acknowledge it. But I know you see that. That there are things sometimes in your heart you say, oh no, I shouldn't be thinking that. And no amount of law is going to change that. It is sin inside of us that makes our children resist our guidance and authority as God's ambassadors. It is the sin that makes them fight. It is the sin that gets in the way of completing their task. It is the sin that causes them to be attracted to what is destructive. It is the sin that makes them vain. It is the sin that makes them feel entitled. It is the sin that makes them demand, materialistic, complain, and they think they are the center of the universe from the moment they are born. To be served in rather to serve. And it is that sin that makes parenting difficult, demanding, exhausting, and impossible. Because if we can't even manage our own heart, how will we manage the hearts of another, though they are our dear children? Therefore, congregation and friends and families, if we hope to be a tool in God's children's lives, we need to take the tool of God in our hands. And that's not the law. It is the gospel. That is the 
tool to change the heart. We need to think about that together and pray about it. No, no. I do not mean you have to preach all day. But maybe we need to ask ourselves, do I really live the gospel of grace? If you're a child of God, ask yourself, how does God parent me when I fail, when I rebel, when I stray? Or when I forget sin of infirmity. Or when I just, for a moment, am weak. How how does God parent me then? Does he come storming at me with a big voice and a loud, loud law in his hand? That's how we need to think about parenting. Am I living, preaching, the gospel. Yeah, when we holler and when we condemn and we place the consequences on our kids and we make a snap judgment and we jail them for the rest of the day, we do nothing to change the heart. Except we might make it worse. Provoke not your children to anger. Fathers, is our text tonight. And while never lowering the standards of God, let's ask yourself, how often do I use the opportunities that God gives me in the stress and strain of daily life to gently and to lovingly show them the inescapable Capable need for Jesus, as well as the wonderful availability of Jesus Christ for them to become a different child. Yeah, I am guilty of it, and preparing this sermon made me feel horribly a failure again. Yeah, so I'm not standing above you, please. I'm standing right among you, but it's my duty tonight to preach this text. Too often, fathers and mothers, I and you perhaps also, we fail to shepherd the heart of our child in the moment of conflict. To bring them face to face with the living reality of the gospel. And if we want a behavior change, it's got to come with a heart change. So God's calling in Ephesians 6, 4. Let's read it again. And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We are not to bring them down in anger, but we are to bring them up in the fear of God. And notice, fathers, you and I are addressed. Don't think Paul must have forgotten about the mother's because he's a, you know, he's a male, he doesn't think about female. No, no, not at all. This is Holy Spirit inspired scriptures. Not a word too little and not a word too much. So there is an intention that we fathers are here addressed. Fathers are the head of the house. 
They are the head of the Marriotts. The primary authority in Marriotts and family life lies with us fathers. And so let's at first take that on. That doesn't mean that the mothers are not critically important. And sometimes, especially in our younger kiddies, mothers spend more hours of the day with them. But they are still not the main responsible person at home. That's us fathers. So it's for us to learn tonight. Now, before we go on, let's sing Psalter 290, verse 6 and 7, which is an historical psalm reflecting on the failures of fathers back in the days of Israel. In evil, we have gone astray and sinful is our race. But then notice, rebellious our fathers walked. That's why the other next generation goes astray, forgetful of thy grace. And then the wonderful refrain every time in the gospel of the Old Testament, verse 7, though they rebelled, and that's what follows then. So 290, verse 6 and 7. Fathers and mothers, we are never to provoke our children to wrath or, as Colossians, to bring them to anger and discouragement. Now, what does that not mean? Let's just first think of that. What does that not mean? It does not mean we never oppose our children or deny them certain things that they want. It doesn't mean that God says... Don't set up a boundary. No, no, you have to set up boundaries, God's boundaries, and you may set up your family boundaries as long as they're not contrary to God's word. As as a king in your home, you have the authority to make your house rules. And every family has their own, but they must be biblically supportable. So, yes, that is not what it means. We, We may set a boundary. We are to correct our children. God's law is his will, and we are to honor that for our good, and we have the stewardship. 
to maintain those boundaries in the children's lives as to grow up. Train up a child in the way it should go, and when it is old, it shall not depart from it. Now, provoke not your children to wrath does also not mean don't ever make your kids angry. Kids are going to be angry. Especially when they are not very happy about the consequences. They're not going to say, oh, thank you, Dad. It was such a wonderful consequence. No, they're going to be angry. So when God says don't provoke your children to anger, does not mean never, there'll be never a case that you should, uh, should avoid all anger. No. Sometimes we have to chastise our children for their transgressions. That's why I chose Hebrews 12 tonight. Great parent, Jesus, of his children. He chastises. He doesn't punish. Chastises his people, his children. What does that mean? Why does, why does Jesus never punish his children? That's a judicial thing. That, that's, that's happened on the cross. But chastise is a medicine thing. That's to correct, to heal, not to punish. Punishing that goes in the court. Chastisement is in the family and in the school and in the church. It's a whole different method and intention. And that, yeah, we need to do like God. Now, when God came as a parent to face Cain, who was really the wrong way, wasn't he? First chapter in the Bible. I mean, first, uh, fourth chapter of the Bible. Cain, why are you looking so angry? God is parenting this boy or young man. Yeah, so, and God indeed used consequences there when he ends up killing his, uh, his brother. So there is times when anger or rightful, holy anger, and that's a very tender subject, uh, is, is appropriate. God himself is a God that doesn't hide his anger and his displeasure. I was reading Leviticus 26, verse 27 and 28, and if you will not For all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me. Then I will walk contrary to you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. So sometimes God lets us feel his fury. And so when when God says, don't provoke your children to anger, don't think, oh, I can never be angry with my children. I said the other day in one of our catechism classes, I think I asked the question there, do you think we Christians are perhaps not angry enough today? I mean, who is so angry about the children that are killed in the womb and all those terrible things that are happening around us and maybe among us? That should be a holy anger. And also in parenting, there is an appropriate display of anger. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: he that spareth the rod, he hates his son. So don't say, provoke not your children to anger, doesn't mean I don't need to use the rod. God says you do. He that loveth his son, he chasteneth him in time. 
Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but a rod of correction shall drive it far from them. There need to be consequences. There need to be the application of the rod. Biblical. God does it as a parent. We do it as a parent. And Hebrews 12, verse 6, we just read it. The Lord chastises those whom he loves. And Paul then refers to his parents. And I don't quite have the light on that particular passage when he says, but when our fathers did it, they did it for their pleasure. Or verily, a few days they chastened us after their own pleasure. I don't know whether the author there meant that his or father perhaps don't always do it well. But he says, but he for our profit, God when he chastises us, not for his pleasure. It's for our profit. As a matter of fact, it, it, God himself is pained when he needs to discipline. So again, what does it not mean? What does not provoke your child to wrath or discourage then really mean? Because it says that, provoke not your children. Provoke means stir. It's two things, congregation, fathers, mothers. First, that we as parents seek to create such a setting in our families or in our classrooms or whatever other authority structures, or that we use such methods that we make obedience reasonable, pleasure, joyful. This is what William Gouges the Puritan's perspective on this whole chapter is. He says, as parents, we are to think, what can I do to help my child to do his part? That's what we need to think. What can I do to help my students to do their part? They have to obey and respect. We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. As a parent, what am I to do? As we studied Ephesians chapter 5 about the duty of the husband and the wife, well, the duty of the wife is to submit also to her own husband as unto the Lord. But the duty of the husband is to display his headship in such a way that submission would be easy, pleasurable. And how? I love your wife as Christ loved his church. And that way be the head. Now, that's, apply that now also to parents. As parents, we are having the duty to make obeying us easy, pleasant. Now, that doesn't mean that, that they want to. Reasonable. I have to work on that. Ask ourselves, am I treating them honorably? Am I treating them in such a way that I don't stir up that vile fountain within their heart? That then will turn into vile words and vile attitudes and vile rebellion. That's their problem. That's when kids do that. But it's our responsibility not to provoke them. 
to wrath. Yeah, doing this means that then each time a child reacts in anger, I broke Ephesians 6 verse 4. Does I, do I need to interpret that? Every time I see my child getting angry with me, oh, oh, oh I better go back to it. No. No, not necessarily. Unless our children are regenerate. They will react against all authority. As every sinner will. You know, when our children are not regenerate parents, and, we, and, and if I'm not regenerate, and if you're not regenerate, we're on, the, we're on the same wavelength as the Apostle Paul was when he writes in Titus 3. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish. Think of that. This is a description of anyone unregenerate. We were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived, we were serving divers' lusts and pleasures, we were living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. That's how Paul lived. Notice the next verse. But after the kindness and the love of God appeared, God didn't approach him, but with kindness and love. What a parent. And so we need to ask ourselves and challenge our thinking. We need to look at our own methods. If our child reacts in this anger, then we need to ask ourselves, Lord, what am I doing wrong? That may not be anything. You may be nothing wrong. But let's ask it anyway. Don't we? Let's step back from a moment and ask ourselves, Lord, was there anything in the way I handled this situation that became a big explosion that I did wrong? Instead of walking away and saying, these rotten kids, the way they talk, I never talk to my dad or mom. Now that might be the case. But ask yourself first, is there anything in me, God, that I did to provoke them to wrath? So what parent methods and what manners provoke your children to anger or discourage? The word discourage in Paul's letter means dispirit. It is literally meaning evaporate their spirit. Incredible word to describe a young person. What is it? There are two things that I want to point out this evening from this text. You fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Provoking children to wrath and to anger is whatever provokes the child's spirit instead of addressing his sin. Let's think about that method. Any time that we attack, belittle, shame, wound the spirit of the child, rather than that I am focusing on the sin that the child has done, I'm provoking him to anger. God wants repentance. God wants change. God wants growth in the child. 
That's why he's giving us these children. But nothing grows in a trampled garden. Nothing grows out of a wounded and crushed spirit. Nothing grows in a young man or young woman who feels belittled, who feels shamed, who feels embittered, who feels angry and violated. There are still old people in our midst today, or older ones, who struggle with some of these wounds that they were given in their youth. They were provoked to wrath or bitterness or they were so discouraged and dispirited because parenting is person-focused rather than problem-focused. And this is what God means, and God is jealous about these children. God is jealous about those people he gives to me to take care of. And if there has been a consistent pattern in our method of parenting that continues to put them down and crush their spirit and belittle their feelings, you may live, you may, you may bring up a child to anger against you, against God, against church. And I've met too many of them that have reacted that way. And then I think back of this text. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And maybe maybe not all of them are angry. Maybe others are discouraged. Remember? Dispirited. They live in a dispirited frame of heart because they feel shame and they struggle with fear. And lack of confidence. They striving to be better and to prove themselves worthy. Because they've always heard you're not good enough. You're not good enough. I'm guilty of that. I confess. And as we have heard that long enough, we're going to believe it. And we are dispirited. And God says, watch it, fathers. That you don't provoke your children to wrath, neither dispirit them. I do not want my children I have given you to be wounded and to be degraded and to be stripped and discouraged with being never good enough or not measure up. Or you're not like so and so or you will bring shame on us parents or... Yeah, some of them have even heard, I wish you'd never born. Wow. What would God think of that is one thing. But what will children grow up with? So that's the first method in which we can provoke our children to wrath when instead of dealing with the sin and seeking to lead them into a different direction, we crush the spirit of the child. Now, the second very often mistake by which we provoke children to anger easily is when we treat all disobedience as rebellion or purposeful. Not all wrong our children do is rebellion. Sometimes it's lack of ability or immaturity. 
as Jesus is walking with his young disciples, they make some cardinal mistakes. Not all of it was out of rebellion. And they tried to hinder the children to come. Jesus became very angry. But the disciples were not rebellious. They were immature. They were very immature. And the great Lord Jesus, as he is indeed expressing his great displeasure, makes it a teachable moment. Brethren, hinder not these children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, so not all the children's disobedience must immediately be rebellion or purposeful. A child is not a miniature adult. They don't have the same control over their own actions sometimes. And when we forget this, our instructions or our expectations or our commands may be like asking them to pick up something that's way too high on a shelf. And we punish them for not able to reach that. That would be so wrong. So let's pray. Give me this discernment, Lord, to deal with thee as thou deals with thy children. Psalm 103, as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he remembers what? That we are dust, immature, weak. And instead of approaching us, in those moments of failing in infirmities and weakness with anger. He approaches them with compassion and grace. That's the gospel. Let's sing that one Psalter from 281 verse 1, because that's really where, where this Psalter comes from. Mindful of our human frailty is the parent I just paraphrase God for a moment. It's the parent in whom we trust. He whose years are everlasting. He remembers. We are dust. So this verse 1 of 281. Instead of bringing them down, we are to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The word bring them up is in the Greek, the word feed or nourish. It's the same word you find in chapter 5, verse 29. I'll read it to you. For no man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourisheth 
and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. That's the word nourish in our text. Bring them up, nourish them up. The tender word. In other words, what we do to ourselves, we do to our wife. But here God says, what you do to yourself, you do to your children. Nourish them up. As a husband, I am to lead my wife the way I nourish my own body. And I can, might as well add the word cherish to it. And God says here, the way you bring up your children is you nourish them as you nourish your own body. And if you combine that with cherish, that means then literally to soften by heat, literally. Think about the, about the warmth of the little birds under the feathers of mother bird. That's the word, bring them up. With tender love and tender care. Not only when they're little infants, also when they're bulky teenagers. They still need the same. They need to be cherished and nourished in their personhood. That's our task, fathers and mothers. That's a big task, isn't it? God expects us to feed and to nourish our children, but then he adds something, not just in their physical needs, not just in their emotional needs, it's all part of it, but he zeroes in, he says, I want you to nourish them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He wants us to nurture them or to feed them in their relationship with God. You know that relationship is so important, right? As we hold these little children in our arms when they're just born, we're bonding them with us with the touch of cherishing, nourishing their hungry little being. We are giving them these caring. And God says, I want you to bring up these children. Not that they just feel your hands. I want you to bring them up that in all you do, they may feel that they are nourished and cared for by me. That's what that means. Bring them up. Nourish them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They need to grow up thinking not about me as a caring and a powerful creator, but also as a loving shepherd who has taken your children and placed them as lost sheep in the little garden, in the little pasture I have made you a shepherd of. They have to grow up, congregation, and they have to experience through us as parents That God is a loving shepherd seeking them. They have to sense through us as we deal with them. That God is a God ready to pardon. Even when we are most unworthy to pardon. We have to bring them up. 
We have to nourish in them this conviction that Jesus pictured, mind you, with a parent-son relationship. As a father standing looking for the rebel son running with compassion in his heart. Not a big stick, but with a heart that was filled with compassion. And you say, yeah, but the boy was already repenting. Yeah, and he repented three times more after that hug of the horrific sins he'd done. You see, that's bring them up. They do not need to see God as a God with a big stick, so you better behave because he's bigger than you, and if you don't listen, you're going to hell. That gives you compliance, but not devotion. That may make them behave, but not win the heart. And God says, I want you as fathers and mothers to bring them up in the nurture. The word nurture is the word training by action. The word admonition is training by words. Now, nurture means you train or you discipline by the actions that start with exampling, that start with correcting, that is the culture, the chastening, uh, that is the, the sacrifices you make for them, that is the commitment they show, you show to them, that is the love that you give them. The action. They want to see the action. That's nurture. Admonition literally means to put in their mind. That's through the word. That's the teaching. That's what Jesus does. Action. Doesn't he? As he is walking around, he's shown by action what it is to love people. But he also shows it by words. He's teaching them as he walks along the way. And he's leading his children to maturity. As his disciples. So admonition and nurture. What a wonderful opportunities we have, especially on those critical moments when they're disobedient, rebellious, disrespectful. Sadly, the whole scale of sins that our children are capable. What do we do on those moments? I have to say to myself, oftentimes all I do is I take out the law and I'm the lawgiver and I'm the judge and I'm the jailer. You're off to your bedroom. But where have I preached the gospel along that journey? In those actions. Oh, congregation, I prayed it tonight, but my conviction this week, we are to bring and use the law but in the hands of the gospel. That's what this text means. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So sadly, we use so, we miss so many golden moments. Think of Jesus as the disciples or the, the Pharisees are murmuring and complaining. As we're reading through one of the Gospels of Mark at home, I forget the chapter, but the disciples are 
murmuring and complaining about the long day and all the people there. And they say to Jesus, please send them away. Let them go get bread. It's, and, 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 and Jesus says, you feed them. You see, they are frustrated. And send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, you feed them. Yeah, Lord, we have only, we, where do we get bread for so many? How much you have? A few loaves, if you say, okay, make him all sit down. Now that's gospel. On a moment when everybody's hungry and tired and frustrated, Jesus takes the leadership. And instead of coming on the value, on the goal, the, 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 the mindset of the disciples, he ministers in that golden moment. Congregation, we're going to close. In my closing statement I wrote on your outline, parenting is often God's way of parenting parents. You know, as you deal with children and you deal with your own children that are impatient and unkind, sometimes demanding, sometimes very disrespectful, Sometimes they complain, even though you work, you slave yourself off with them. Sometimes they're unthankful and disobedient, and they fight, and they want to be first in line, and avoid the chores, and shift the blame, and they think they know all, and argue from morning to night. And as you deal with that, let's be honest, what do you discover of your own heart? I don't even want to tell you what I discover in my own heart at moments like that. But I discover at least this. I need the gospel. I need the grace of God. I need the every hour. To be thy ambassadorial representative, Jesus, in my little family. Or in my classroom. Or in whatever other parenting situation you have with one or more. Before we handle our kids, God needs to put us straight. And so how easily do we let anger and frustration rule us instead of giving grace? We beat our kids with self-righteous words instead of bless them with divine wisdom. Or we load them with toxic shame instead of leading them to sorrow over sin. Or we approach them with swords. Remember, that's judicial. Instead of medicine. To heal them. And to reach their heart. Tough job to be parenting. But we have a God who can help us. And we have also a Savior. Who has atoned for the years of parenting because though Jesus had not his own children he certainly discipled children in the faith and by his wonderful fulfillment of the fifth commandment he atoned also for the sins of his people in that regard let's go may the Lord bless these words together amen Beloved, 
and great God. We have reviewed again this so solemn task to parent our beloved children. And Lord, thou knows we love them. We think about them day and night. And we wrestle for them. And we sacrifice for them. And yet, Lord, so often also as parents, we fail to be the instrument thou wants us to be. Thank thee for reminding us also through this scripture. That, Lord, to be reminded is not yet to be empowered. We pray again, not only that we may truly repent, that thou would enable us by thy grace, Lord, to have a watch upon our own heart as well as upon our own tongue. Now teach us, Lord, how to maintain the beauty of thy holy law in the hands of the gospel. Teach thou us, Lord Jesus, to be like unto thee, who remembers that we are dust as well, and that we are but of weak frame. And Lord, so thankful that thou art a God who parents us with gentleness and grace, compassion and love. And Lord, that we have been reminded tonight, we cannot change our hearts and the hearts of our children. But will thou use us also when we use the law and the gospel in our families Thou wilt bring new life through the instrument of thy word in our hands of us as parents. Faithful God, go with us now and bless thou us as we go forth in this week ahead of us. Keep safe and well in all our journeys and all our labors. And bless us all to be safe from sickness and harm and danger sin and evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.